I begin with the message this morning, I want to take just a moment to recognize the fact that yesterday was a solemn day, a significant day of remembrance for many and individuals and families, but also for us as a nation as it was the celebration of the 20th anniversary of the, uh, the events that took place, what we commonly just refer to now as 9-11, right, on, on that fateful day, September the 11th of 2001, and, and the events that took place that day. And uh, the thing that I, I want to say just to you as a church and, and in, in memory of that day is that as we think about uh, the past and we reflect on the, the events that have taken place in that day, the way that it shaped our world and has, has, has changed uh, literally, our, our culture and, and, and things that we do as a result of the things that took place that day, and also just as we reflect on, on ways that we've changed individually, as, as our lives have changed, as, as uh, we have grieved, as we have grown, as we have learned from that day. Uh, I pray God's comfort and peace on those families that lost loved ones that day, and those who lost friends, and, and I pray that we as a culture would, would be reminded on this significant, this milestone anniversary of uh, what it is that makes America a great nation. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's the people. It's the unity that we share. It's the, 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 the values, the beliefs, the things that we are founded upon, that we hold dear to, the things that, that, that truly ought to shape our lives. The idea that uh, freedom and, and justice and liberty and the rule of law and these things are, are central to our lives and central to the foundation and the fabric of a successful culture, a successful people uh, are all uh, important. And days like that and, and, and subsequent things that, that we've seen in our world since then uh, serve as reminders to us that, that life is precious, that life is a gift, and that what we do to make the most of the, of the time that we've been given, the life that we've been given, matters. And importantly, as we bring it back to the idea of our faith, I think it's important that we remember that uh, the core of, of what we know to be true about freedom isn't found in a constitution, it's not found in a set of uh, rules or laws or a governmental structural, that freedom itself comes from God. And that even in our founding documents, it refers to the fact that these are inalienable rights. You know, we don't have freedom because the Constitution gives us freedom. The Constitution recognizes that we are free. It's a, it's a right that we have. It's not granted to us. If it has to be granted to you by the government, it's not actually a right. Uh, it, it's a right that we have because of, because of God, ultimately, because he's the one that has made us free. And, and uh Yesterday was a, a solemn reminder in, in many ways of that, but also an important moment for us to look back, to reflect on the past, to look forward to the future, and to dream for and hope for uh, the, the, the better days to come. And, and, and the belief, that the core belief that we share, that if we work together, that if we will commit our lives to things that are ultimately true, the values that we've been founded upon, and what's more, if we will be united and work together, then, then we can continue to be a strong and a prosperous nation. And um, that's weighed heavy on me this week, as I imagine it probably has you as well. And, and I wanted to just, um, I wanted to acknowledge that this morning before we get started with everything else. Okay, 
Uh, I want to take a moment now to dismiss our children who are a part of our kids' crew to head upstairs. This is for kids who are fourth grade and under, so our kids and our leaders will make their way here to the front. They'll head upstairs to be a part of kids' crew this morning. As they're doing that, I want to encourage you to turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series that will last for the next several weeks. And we're calling this movement. And here's the central, here's the central truth in, in, that we're going to be exploring together. Is that in order to see a movement of God in our midst, we have to say, God, move me. And so you can see even in our, uh, our, our logo or our, the, the, the graphic here, if you will, you see the, the letters M-E in the midst of this word have been sort of highlighted in a unique way to emphasize the fact that what we're seeking is the movement of God that begins with me, that begins with each one of us individually and asking God to move in our hearts and our lives. This is going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 today. Before we jump in uh, all the way, I want to to pause also just to say if you're a guest, a newcomer worshiping with us today, we would encourage you to fill out the guest registration cards. These are located throughout the sanctuary in the backs of our pews. So you'll just reach forward, grab one of those. You can fill that out or you can use your worship guide that you received on the back side of that. By the way, you can follow along with this morning's message. But on the inside, if you scan the QR code with your phone, then it'll take you to a website. If you're listening this morning online or uh, on our radio broadcasts on Cool 105 or you're, you're watching our live stream uh, somewhere online this morning, we would encourage you to go to our website, fbcchickasha.org slash connect. And there you'll be able to fill out that same form. Let us know that you're worshiping with us today. We want to be able to connect with you. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to jump in this morning with this idea of Uh, of, of the movement of God, seeking a movement of God that begins with each one of us looking inwardly and reflecting inwardly and asking God to move in our hearts and our lives. And so, uh, Tonight, we're going to begin a series of Sunday evening gatherings that, that is going to be focused on revival, where we're going to be seeking revival, and we're going to be praying for and asking God to move in our midst as a church. You know, there's a difference between revival meetings and revival. Uh, revival meetings, or sometimes it's referred to uh, uh, this idea of revivalism, maybe you've heard the, the word revivalism, is often attributed to uh, a gentleman named Charles Finney, who was a figure in the 19th century, uh, uh, and, and maybe you've heard of the name Charles Finney before, maybe you haven't, uh, but Finneyism or, or uh, revivalism, as it's often referred to, was, was built around this, this idea that Finney identified these, these, these principles. And it was his idea that, that if you could come in and you could establish the right moment and the right situation and create the right atmosphere and do these certain things, these certain uh, key principles that you would see a movement of God. And so revival meetings became very popular. Uh, Now, to be clear, Finney himself is not the one who popularized the idea of revival meetings. That happened before Finney, the the Great Awakenings, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and other... all of that was going on. In fact, Finney himself is often identified with sort of the latter part 
of the second great awakening, which even just the fact that it's referred to as a second great awakening means there was a first great awakening, right? And, and, and so Finney didn't create the idea of revival, but he's often associated with much of what we consider to be this idea of modern revivalism. And so if you grew up in a church that uh, that, that would hold week-long revival meetings. Or if you grew up in a, in a church where maybe, maybe you'd set up a tent and you'd have a, a, a big tent revival or you'd have a meeting outside the church or, or something of that nature, then you grew up with some uh, remnants of Finney's revivalism. And to be clear, I mean, there are some good things about all of that. I, I, I don't mean to disparage Uh, the idea of revival meetings or any of that. But to be clear, when we seek revival, when we pray for revival, when we talk about revival, we're not talking about revival meetings. We're talking about what happens in the awakening in the hearts of people as God stirs, as God moves in our hearts. And so we're we're praying for and seeking an awakening of God, a, a fresh movement of his Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives, where we're saying, God, move in us, move in our hearts, revive us, breathe a fresh life, a, a fresh movement of your Holy Spirit into our hearts and our lives. That's what we're seeking, not just a set of meetings, not just uh, we're going to meet on these nights, and because we're going to meet, we're just going to show up and and we're going to say that we had revival. But we're going to meet together to solemnly pray and seek a movement of God. And even on Sunday mornings, during this same period of time, we're going to be looking at what it means to experience a movement of God in our hearts and in our lives. As I've been praying about all of this and and, and thinking and reflecting on this for, for many weeks now, I have identified what I think are some hallmarks of revival. Again, not revival meetings, but revival. When we see a movement of God, some hallmarks of revival, of that fresh movement. And so I've begun to pray that these things would happen in us, in, in our midst, in, in our church. And so, uh, again, I, I don't mean that this, has to, this is not an exhaustive list, and I don't even mean to say that, uh, that this is one of those things that we need to put too much stock in. I'm just saying that this has really informed my prayer in the last several days and, and weeks that I, I, I have identified just personally that when revival happens, there's prayer for repentance and earnest prayers for repentance. There's a renewed spiritual fervor that people begin to focus on spiritual things. There's passion for holiness. There is commitment to obedience and an anticipation of God's movement. And so I've begun to pray for those things. I've begun to seek the Lord in prayer, asking for him to move in our midst. I've, I've prayed that in my own heart and in my own life first, there would be a renewed spiritual fervor, that, that I would have a passion for holiness, a commitment to obedience, and an anticipation that God was going to move. And I, and I want to encourage you, if you would, to join me seeking those things and praying for those things. And a great way that you can do that is by being present. It, being present over the next several weeks on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings as we, as we seek together a movement of God in our midst. This is what I believe firmly, wholeheartedly. I believe God wants to move and do something in, in our church, in our community, in our lives. I believe, in fact, what's more, that when, when we don't see God move, it's not because God doesn't want to. It's because we aren't seriously seeking him the way that we ought to. God's desire is to move, and if we will seek him, and if we will put him first, we will experience, and I don't mean 
an emotional kind of thing. I'm not talking about something that just stirs up our emotions and produces little effect. Emotion itself is not a bad thing. In fact, emotion can be really important. But it's not the emotion that we're seeking. Rather, it's the transformation that we're seeking. And along the way, I think if we're really genuinely seeking life transformation, God to move in our midst, then it's going to be an emotional thing because, because it is, right? Um, and, and so we want to pray for God to move in our midst, revival to stir our hearts. And we're going to do that on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights in unique ways over the next several weeks. And Sunday mornings, of course, you get to hear from me. And we're going to be talking about a movement. And on Sunday evenings, we're going to be hearing from uh, some, some men in our church who are going to bring a word of challenge to us and, and a charge to us that we would pray for and seek revival in our midst. And I hope that you'll plan to be a part. Obviously, you're here this morning, but also tonight at 6 o'clock as well as we gather again for a time of worship. All right, Isaiah chapter 6, as we think about this movement of God, I, I thought this is a great place to begin because here we see this movement that happens in Isaiah's own life as God is, literally this is Isaiah's call. This is the moment where the Lord calls him, calls him out and sends him to his people to preach and, and prophesy and, and, and call them into a right relationship with God. And we learn some things about Isaiah's own call that I think are instructive for us in our lives as we seek to be used by God, to be led of God, to, to see this movement of God in our own hearts, and our own lives. So I want us to look at Isaiah's call here. And so we'll read together in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So read with me. In the year that King Uzziah died, pause for just a moment, King Uzziah was a significant figure in uh, in, in Judah, in, in the, the story of, of the people of Judah. And so uh, Uzziah died in the year 730, and, and in the year that Uzziah died, it was the end of a 52-year reign. Uzziah reigned over Judah for 52 years and, and honored the Lord, and, and, uh, and he wasn't a perfect man or a perfect king by any means, but sought to lead the people to do what was right. And now at the moment where Uzziah has died, there is... Uh, there is sort of a, a, a tension that is building. This pressure, this mounting pressure for the, the nation of Judah to surrender to foreign, uh, foreign peoples and, and to follow the customs and the cultures and the practices and to, and to submit to foreign rulers. And, and in the midst of that tension, God is going to send Isaiah to his people to call them to be holy and just and to walk blamelessly and to honor the covenant, the commitment that they have made to him and to, and to, uh, and to put truly God first. And, and so we're going to see that in, in some ways this morning, but then if you go on and you study the, the, the rest of Isaiah's letter and, and his life and his story, of course, you, you get a picture of how all of that works. Okay, so we jump back in. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. The word seraphim literally means burning ones. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. This is, a, this is an incredibly important moment in the life of an incredibly important figure in the story of the Old Testament and the unfolding narrative of God's covenant relationship to his people. And so Isaiah was, certainly he was a major prophet. Right? In fact, uh, we refer to the, the, the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we refer to these as the major prophets, right? That's, that's what we even, we call these books. These, these were, were key major prophetic figures in the life of, uh, of, of Israel and, and Judah, the nation, uh, the divided kingdom, certainly at this point. And, and God is going to use Isaiah in some significant ways. But before God uses Isaiah in a significant way, God's going to first show up and do something significant in Isaiah's life. And that's what we see take place here in Isaiah chapter 6. This, this key moment, this key encounter. Look at, look at the, the response that Isaiah has here to this vision that he sees, right? The vision itself is a vision of the throne room of heaven, and, and there he sees uh, the Lord sitting upon a throne, and, and the seraphim, and they're crying out, right? And the foundations shook at the voice of him. And then his response, beginning in verse 5 Woe is me, for I am lost. Woe is me. Uh, another translation, another English, the NIV translation says, Woe is me, for I am undone is the way that, that it translates this. Woe is me, I am lost, I am undone. It's that basic recognition that, that I am nothing. And then he goes on to say, he keeps saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What an incredible moment. And then, in a few verses down, we see, again, his response in, in terms of his obedience with this key phrase, here am I, send me. And so Isaiah, in, in this vision, Isaiah has an encounter with the Lord. He sees God. He sees the throne. He hears the voice of God calling to him, and his response is one of obedience. And I think there, there are four things that we're going to see in in this story, in this vision that Isaiah relates to us, that I think are not only descriptive of Isaiah's encounter with the Lord, but they become for us prescriptive of, of what it means to see and respond in obedience to the voice of the Lord. If we're going to hear God, see God move and hear Him and respond in obedience to Him, we want to, we want to respond in a way like what Isaiah responds to the call of God here. The first thing we see in this, uh, this unfolding pattern, if you will, the first thing we see from this is that Isaiah recognizes that before God, he is nothing. That in the, in the, in the presence of Almighty God, he recognizes that he is nothing. And I think that this is important for us to understand that to experience a movement of God in my life, I must realize God's unmatched power. 
Just as Isaiah realizes in this moment the awesomeness of God, truly the the awe-inspiring, unmatched power of God, we must recognize that it is the same God with the same power that that we pray to, that we call to, the same God that wants to move in our hearts and our lives just as he moved in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah recognized in the presence of this God that he was nothing. Woe is me, I am lost. Woe is me, I am undone. Woe is me, I'm nothing, you could say. It's this this recognition that in the presence of God, he, he doesn't stand up and say, oh God, I'm so great. God, you're great and you've made me great. No, he says, God, you are, you're great and I am nothing. It's, it's, it brings him to that moment of humility and it, it ought to do the same in our lives. That in order to see God move in our hearts, we have to be humbled. We can't come to God in, in pride. We can't come to God and and try to puff up our own chest or uh, list out our own spiritual resume, as it were, of all the things. We don't come to God and, and say, well, Lord, I know you're great, but uh, here's all the good stuff that I can know. In order to see God move in our hearts and our lives, we have to be brought to that point of, of, of nothingness, that point of brokenness, that pr- point of base humility where we say, God, I'm nothing, but you're everything. That's, that's the moment that Isaiah relates to us here. That's, that's what's happening in this story. He recognizes that he is lost. He is nothing. I wonder, has there ever been a, a moment truly in your life where you recognized your own lostness? Now, we refer to being lost and being saved in terms of salvation when we think about what it means to trust in Christ and to, and to receive him by faith. And so oftentimes we'll refer to the period in our lives before we surrender our, our, our lives to Christ, before we, we trust him by faith, we refer to, to, to that period as we were lost, right? And, and then we refer to the period after we make that commitment to follow Christ, after we, we trust in him by faith in the gospel, we refer to that as being saved. Because we literally, we, that's what we believe. Salvation has come. We have been rescued and redeemed from our sins, saved from our sin by the saving grace of Christ. So there's this dichotomy between what it means to be lost and, and to be saved. Has there been that moment in your life where you've recognized that you were a sinner? And that you were in need of salvation? That you truly were lost? Isaiah has such a moment here where he says, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I'm nothing. God, I... And in that moment, and, and through even ultimately that, com- that confession, salvation comes to Isaiah because he places his faith in the Lord. Now, uh, in, in this, of, of course, uh, in, in this story, we see a vision. I'm not talking about a vision of sorts. I'm not talking about did you have a, a, a vision of heaven and did you see seraphim? That's, so that's not, that's not, I'm not saying did you have an Isaiah experience in that sense. But I mean, has there ever been a moment in your life where you recognized that you were a sinner and by faith you committed your life to Jesus? You confessed him as Lord and Savior, that you, you surrendered your life to him That's what it means, I think, to recognize this unmatched power is to know that that God has the power to forgive and cleanse and redeem and ransom and restore. He has the power to 
to, even as we heard when the crowders read from Psalm 103, to remove us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. God has the power to save us from our sin. And when we recognized his power, his unmatched, unrivaled, unparalleled power, now, now we're at the moment where, 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 we, can, where we can truly seek his movement in our hearts, in our lives. But not only does Isaiah recognize that before God he was nothing, he also recognizes that he was dirty. He was stained by his sin, right? Because he says, I am an unclean man, or I'm a man of unclean lips. It's, it's a confession of his sinfulness. And not only that, I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I'm a, I'm a man who is tainted by sin and I live amongst people who are tainted by sin. I am sinful and I live in the midst of a sinful generation. He recognized his sin. To experience a movement of God, I must recognize the problem of my sin. I must recognize that my sin is worthy of the wrath of God, that my sins are worthy of the punishment of God, that my sins have condemned me in light of the righteous requirement of God. And yet, by His grace, God has made a way for us to be forgiven and set free. Now, in, in the picture of Isaiah's call, forgiveness comes as he confesses his sin, as he looks to the Lord in faith, and he essentially says, Lord, I'm willing to do what you ask me to do. I want to be obedient to you. And by faith, it was credited to him as righteousness, as we believe of all the Testament, the Old Testament figures, that they were believing in faith, the promise of God, looking forward to the things that were to come. Hebrews chapter 11 spells that out for us. By the way, that's, a, uh, I suppose, the uh, salvation, uh, the story of salvation, the history of salvation, how that worked in the Old Testament. That's maybe a sermon for another day. And, but, but we have preached on Hebrews 11 before. You can go backward and find that in our archives on our website and other things. But let me just summarize it in saying this. Hebrews 11 tells us that, that they, referring to these Old Testament figures, believe God in something that was unseen. But we believe in something that we have seen. Because Jesus has come. At this point, Jesus has come. And he's fulfilled the promise that God made. The Messiah, the chosen one of God, and that by faith in him we can be forgiven, our sins forgiven, and we can be set free. And so in order to experience a movement of God, we must recognize the problem of our sin. And not just recognize it, but we repent of that sin. As we've been looking at the last several weeks in our study in Lamentations, that we would repent of our sin, that we would do a 180, essentially. That's a good, simple definition of what repentance is. It's an about-face and that we would turn away from our sin and turn to the Savior in order, that we might, in order that we might surrender our lives to Him, confess Him as Lord and Savior, and find forgiveness in Christ. We're no different from Isaiah. We're sinful people who live in the midst of a sinful generation. But as we turn to Jesus in faith, our sins are forgiven, and we receive His grace and His mercy. The third thing that takes place in this story, this unfolding vision that Isaiah is relating, is that Isaiah recognizes the majesty of God. And so he's seeing the seraphim flying around, and and, and he's seeing them, and he's hearing this 
thunderous voice crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, right? He, he hears this. What a sight that must have been uh, to, to behold. And, and as he's experiencing all of this, he, he recognizes the utter majesty of God. And his response is one of worship. His response is, is one of, of worship, of surrender to the Lord. And in our lives as well, if we're to experience a movement of God, we must reorder our lives around worship. And, and hear what I mean when I say this. I don't mean that we have to reorder our lives around worship services, right? It's not practical. It's not even really it's not possible, it's not necessary for us to be here in this room 24 hours. That's, that's, not, that's certainly not what God was calling Isaiah to. God didn't call Isaiah to stay where he was. Instead, he called him to go out. And, and although we gather here weekly for worship and we gather here to, to study the word together and to, uh, and, and to remind each other through this rhythm of life, this rhythm of, 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 of worship and surrender, this rhythm of study the word, we, we remind each other of the gospel, we commit ourselves and renew our commitment to the gospel and, and we link arms together. I mean, that's important what we do when we gather for corporate worship. But I'm not talking about a worship service. I'm not talking about uh, worship songs. I'm not meaning that you have to have a 24-7, you know, K-Love playlist playing in your mind at all times. It's, I'm talking about w- w- the true meaning of worship here in the sense that worship is about, is about ascribing worth to something. It's about ascribing worth. That's where the word even comes from. And, and so in, in this sense that we are saying, Lord, I'm giving you first place in everything. God, I want to put you first. I want to worship you by making you first in everything. You are worthy. You are deserving. You are are majestic and glorious and awesome and unmatched in power. And so, God, I want to reorder my life around putting you first. You need to be the center of everything. We speak of this oftentimes today in terms of being Christ-centered, right? We want things to be, we want to be Christ-centered. We want things to be, and, and the whole idea of being Christ-centered just means that Jesus comes first. In my decisions, in my attitudes, in, in my behaviors, in the things that I do, in the way that I parent, in the way that I run my business, in the, in the kind of neighbor that I am, in the kind of employee that I am, the kind of citizen that I am, and in the way that I, that, that I serve others, and in the way that I serve the church, right? and all, Jesus comes first in everything. We put Christ first in everything is what it means. And that's what I'm talking about here, is that we would reorder our lives in such a way that Jesus would be first, that we would be subjects to a king and a kingdom, much as we see here in this vision that Isaiah sees a king on a throne and he recognizes his place before the Almighty, the, the Holy of Holies, the, the Lord of hosts, and he humbles himself. We would have a similar type of response that we would say, Lord, you are my king. You are my Lord. You are the one that I serve. You are the the Lord of hosts. Certainly, you're the Lord of my life. And we reorder our lives around worship in this sense. Jesus is first in everything. And then out of that reordering of of his life, then comes the 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 response of, Lord, send me. Here am I. Send me. And that's the, the final thing we see is that Isaiah recognized that God was calling him and he, and he responded in obedience. 
In order to experience a movement of God, I must respond with obedience. When God is calling to me, I must say, Lord, here am I. Send me, much as Isaiah did. I want you to see something, though, about See something about this moment and this vision that Isaiah has. Turn your Bible to John chapter 12 for just a minute. Turn to John chapter 12 and look at verse 38 in John chapter 12. Because in John chapter 12, the Apostle John relates something to us about Isaiah's vision that I think is really important for us to understand. So in John chapter 12, we're just going to pick up in verse 38. And uh, if if you've got your thumb in Isaiah chapter 6, I want you to keep it there because I want you to see something that that John is going to be quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6 in the verses that follow immediately after what we've read. So if you started like around verse 9 and kept reading, you're going to see uh, what, what... What John is quoting here, and I'll make a point with all this in just a minute. John 12, beginning in verse 38. So the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Okay, so we've picked this up in in mid-sentence, mid-thought. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said... He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, let me ask this question. Who's the him that John is writing about in John chapter 12? Well, when you study it in context, clearly it's Jesus. Undeniably, in fact, in John chapter 12, John is saying that Isaiah did these things and said these things and and, and responded this way because he saw Jesus on the throne. So this is the point that I want to make, is that Isaiah truly has an encounter of sorts here where he sees, in this vision, he sees Christ on the throne. He sees Jesus, and his response is, Jesus, I'm, I will do what you tell me to do. Here am I, send me. His response to the majesty, the glory, the lordship of Christ was one of obedience and surrender. And, and it's nothing less than what is required of us as well. That we would recognize that Jesus is seated on his heavenly throne. And, and that the same, the same Lord that Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah 6... The same Lord of which the seraphim cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's this same Jesus that we honor and we worship. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because, as I said, it's not only what is happening in Isaiah's life descriptive in a sense, but it's prescriptive in a sense. It it gives us an idea of what it looks like to experience a movement of God. We have an encounter with Christ And we respond by saying, Lord, send me. I will go. I will be yours. I Use me. Let me be obedient to you. Use my life in the way that you would. His response was one of obedience. And if we're going to experience a movement of God in our hearts and our lives, we too 
must see the, the, the wondrous majesty of Jesus. We must recognize his unmatched power. We must, we must realize the, the, the problem of our sin. We must reorder our lives around worshiping this Christ who gave everything for us. And we must respond to him in obedience. Saying, Lord, here am I, send me. I'm yours. Whatever you would have me do, wherever you would send me, wherever you lead, Lord, I'll go. I wonder today, are you ready to respond to him in this way? Are you ready to say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. All I am, all I have are yours. Send me, God, I will go. That's what it takes in order to experience a movement of God. You say, Lord, move me. The problem is, so much of the time, we start by saying, Lord, move everybody else, right? Isn't that what we do? Lord, if you would just fix their sin, if you would fix their problem, God, if all these things that are broken in our country, all these things in our culture, all these things in our community, God, if you would just fix all these problems, then things would be right, and then we would see revival. But for Isaiah, the beginning point of revival was not the culture. Now, to be clear, Isaiah recognizes the problem in his culture, but even in that is a confession that starts with him. I am an unclean man, and I live amongst the people of... Un- I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Even that is, is personal first for Isaiah. So much of the time, one of the things that stops us from experiencing a real movement of God is that we, we think it needs to come to everybody else and not us. The point is that we would say, God, move me, move in my heart, move in my life, that you would be willing to get right before the Lord, that you would confess and deal with sin in your own heart and your own life. You want to see God move in in the midst of your community? You want to see God move in the midst of our culture? You want to see God move in your family? You want to see him move in your life? Then quit praying about what needs to happen with everybody else and get serious about what needs to happen in your own heart. If you'll do that, then now you have brought yourself to the place where Isaiah was found. Here am I, Lord, send me. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response, a time of invitation. And in our time of invitation today, I I wonder who's going to be honest enough and even, uh, as it were, brave enough to say, God, I want to see revival come, and I, and I understand that the way that it comes is when I get right before you. Not everybody else and not everything else, but me, God. Will you move in my heart, in my life? And if that's you today, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, our staff will be here at the front. We would love to pray with you and, and, and walk you through what it means to surrender your life, to confess him as Lord and Savior. And, and today, trust Jesus by faith. Maybe the Lord's stirring in your heart and, and there's, there's something that you just need to confess to him or that you just, need to, uh, you just need to make right with the Lord. And today, if that's you, then I would encourage you, I would challenge you, you would respond in obedience to him as we enter into this time of response. And we pray, Lord, here am I, send me. God, start with me. Move in my heart and my life. Would you pray with me? Much like Isaiah, Lord, we desire to see you move in our hearts and our lives. And we recognize that it begins with 
with each one of us individually. Lord, that if we're to see your movement in our midst, the part that we are responsible for is, is ourselves. And preparing our own hearts and saying, Lord, move me. And so may that be our genuine response of, of heartfelt surrender and obedience, of humble posture before you today, saying, God, move in us. We are sinful. We, Lord, cleanse us. We are unworthy, Lord, but you are worthy. We are lost in our sin, but Lord, through you, we can be forgiven and set free. By you, the movement of your spirit and your power alone, Lord, we believe we can see hearts and lives transformed. Let it begin with me. We pray this in your name, Jesus.